what is up everyone? I hope you are doing fantastic today on this holiday week. It is Tuesday, yeah, Tuesday, November 24th. And I'm Rafael Garcia here with Shawan Humes for episode 187 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Shawan, man, we're coming up on episode 200, dude. Not too far. That's a lot of episodes, a long time. Long time to get all those episodes together. Long time, man. It's a long time. Matter of fact, it's we've been doing this show for so long. We're about to talk about Mike Tyson coming back to, to uh, box. And I can't can't even believe I'm actually gonna say that, but we're gonna talk about that later on in the show, along with looking back to UFC 255, which was this past weekend, and UFC on ESPN 18, which was which is, excuse me, this Saturday. But before we do Not that, a very strong card though. <laughs> say it again. Not a very strong card. Uh, look, it's, I'm only really going to talk about it because it's happening. That's it. I mean, and I, and I don't think there's a Bellator card this weekend. But before we do all that, let's um, let everybody know where they can find us first and foremost. You can always check us out at the flagship at MMARatings.net and also.com. You can check Instagram and Twitter and find us at MMA Ratings Net in both spaces. This podcast, and along with the wrestling podcast, which airs you know, you know just about every week, you can catch that on all of our podcast channels, which include YouTube, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, uh, Apple, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Myself, you can catch me at rgarcia underscore sports, and Shawan Humes, you can hit him up at Black Jordan Breen on both Twitter and Instagram as well. But Shawan, let's go ahead and start, man. We're going to jump right into UFC 255 and talk about that main event where Davison Figueredo won in the first round, submitting Alex Perez via submission. And it was it was what we thought it was. Uh, he He looked like he was having a little bit of trouble with Perez maybe initially, but once he got a hold of that neck, that was all. That was about it. I thought Perez was going to get out for a second there, but uh, Figueroa was doing a great job of sitting down on his opponent's neck, and he got the tap. Um, I don't, don't remember exactly what. Let me see. I got the time here. He got the submission in less than two minutes in round one. So, what are what were your thoughts about that in the little bit of time you did see in that fight? Uh, like probably just went the way I thought it was. I mean. Figueredo is such a big, he's such a dominating physical, physical presence. Um, he pretty much just overwhelmed him. I mean, Perez had him off balance for a second. But when you saw, like, when you early saw them exchanging, you'd hear Perez hit him and you would hear Figueredo hit him. Like, the difference, the difference in the power was noticeable and the difference in the size was noticeable. And when you have that much of a physical strength, a physicality advantage, and, and to some degree in athleticism, because it, it's not that he's so much more athletic than Perez, it's you put that you combine the size the weight and the strength with the quickness and the agility and overall that makes him more athletic but um you know per, the only way i saw Perez win the fight was if he could extend the fight and push the high pace and make make figueredo work make him work one round one round two round three and then maybe he would slow down because he he makes a big weight cut to stay in that weight class and if he's forced to work and he can't control positions and he can't just punish you or he can't just um control you with submission attempts, then that gas tank, those muscles use a lot of oxygen, the gas tank might lag a little bit, and then Perez could take over. But it's like I said in, before the fight, 
he's got the ability to, to finish the fight with his power and his strength. I mean, when he was landing shots, Perez didn't like it. Perez couldn't handle what he was firing, and he was able to walk through essentially what Perez was throwing. And when he basically grabbed that submission, if he if, if he had been a little bit smaller or maybe less physical, he probably doesn't snatch that submission. Perez probably works his way out. But when you have that kind of strength advantage, it just takes a second for you to get the squeeze and to end the fight, and that's all it did. I'm Perez knew how to defend it. He was working to get out of it, but it's the strength and the uh, power behind it that really – made the submission obviously it was technically sound but you know you, you as a grappler you grapple guys and a guy might get you in a hole but he's not that strong he's not that explosive and another guy gets you in the same hold but he's you know five times more explosive than you or five times stronger than you and it's a totally different effect not not obviously not because the technique's not important but what's behind the technique and figueredo he throws with good technique when striking he has a good technique in grappling exchanges but he's also probably a good size bantamweight as far as his physical size and his strength and his weight. And he uses those factors to basically make anything he does to maximize the impact of it. Any shot he hits you with is two or three times more effective than a shot another guy hits you with. Any submission he grabs onto is two or three times more effective than any submission somebody else grabs onto. It's like having a bantamweight on top of you or having a bantamweight with his arm wrapped around your neck. So Figueredo, man, like like you pointed out, it went it went ex- exceptionally well in his favor, and so much so that he is going to fight Brandon Moreno, who also who also won in the first round when he TKO'd uh, Brandon Royal in uh, four minutes and fifty nine seconds in the first round of their flyweight fight. They're fighting and uh, on December sixteenth, I believe, because the Peter Yan Aljamain Sterling fight has been moved. So. What do you think about that? Is this quick turnaround good for him? I think it is personally because he his biggest challenge we've seen so far is the weight cut. And I think staying in America and being able to manage his weight cut because he knows he has another competition coming up in less than a month is going to be good for him. He shouldn't have to uh, he shouldn't blow up enough that he has to um, cut a whole lot coming into that fight on the 16th. I do get a little bit concerned about the strain of training for, for two matches back-to-back like that. But he is going to make this quick turnaround. Both of them are, Brandon Roy or, or Brandon Moreno as well. What do you think about that fight, and is that the right fight to make so quickly? I mean, I don't know that there's a better option out there. Most of the guys who are ahead of him haven't really really separated themselves. Most, I mean, even Brandon Moreno, he hasn't beaten anybody in such a fashion that says that this guy should be the next guy. He hasn't had the truly dominating win or gone on a win streak where he's just crushing guys and showing he's a class and a half above them. But, I mean, the, the other two or three contenders that there would be, nobody else has really stood out either. I mean, that's why Joe B, Joe Benavidez got a second chance because they're like, who else has a bigger name? Who else Who else has done better in the division other than him? We didn't have a, a younger, better option for him, if we're being honest. So, I mean, as far as the fight going, it, it's, I mean, at this point, it's good for him because he stays in shape. It's good for the division because the division has another high-profile fight. And if he wins, it puts him on a win streak, and it kind of separates him and maybe gives him a chance to kind of to build up a fan base or build up more excitement for the flyweight division. Um, I'm not as big on the matchup as other people, not because I dislike Moreno. It's just that for Figueredo's the kind of guy you can't let build momentum because he's so strong he starts going forward, it's hard to push him back. It's hard to slow him down. Once he starts landing shots, it's hard to scare him off. It's hard to back him off because most guys don't have the power the power, or they don't have the durability to take what he's, to take what he's firing back on them. So he has, this huge, he has these huge advantages that allow him 
to dictate how and where the fight's going to go. Moreno is a really good reactive fighter. You take him down, he can scramble. Um, you you get into exchanges, he can fire back fairly intelligently. You know, and, and the wilder things get, the better he is able to find his spots and to land his offense and to get the takedowns he wants and get in the position to threaten with the takedowns and all that stuff. But the fact of the matter is he hasn't faced a guy who, in on paper, he really shouldn't be able to move. A guy who, on paper, hits two and three times harder than him. A guy who, any submission he snatches, essentially is going to be the end of the fight. You know, it's easy when you're fighting a guy, when you're a reactive fighter, the thing about it is you're giving up the initiative. The guy does something, you react to it. Now, if you can't hurt him, phys- positionally dominate him or finish him, your ability, to, your your willingness to react essentially puts you on the defensive and keeps you from winning the fight because you're so determined on surviving these these assaults with of strikes, the barrage of strikes. You're so determined to survive the positions and the ground and pound or to get out of the submissions that you, you stop trying to win the fight and you're basically just trying to react enough to survive and get to a position where you can catch your breath or maybe you can slow the fight down or you can find a safety zone. And I don't think Moreno is defensively good enough and nor do I think he's physically dynamic enough to really be Figueredo if Figueredo's at his best. Now, if he has a weight issue or an injury, then yeah, I could see Moreno holding his own and winning. But if, he, if both guys come in at 100%, I haven't seen anything from Brandon Moreno that says against a guy who's bigger, stronger, more durable, and more physical, and so far fights at a higher pace and is more explosive. I don't know how Brandon Moreno beats him. Brandon Moreno hasn't shown me anything that says he can handle or he can beat that kind of guy. He's tough. He's going to push a pace. He's going to fight. He's going to fight out of every position. He's going to fight, fight, and resist anything done to him, which is fine. But I don't know that he can do enough offensively, do enough damage from his end to get the respect he needs or to do the damage necessary to stop his opponent. And if he can't stop him or he can't slow him or he can't keep him off him, he doesn't have any chance of winning because defensively he's not slick enough or technical enough to, to, uh, to keep the heat off him when he's being consistently pressured. So I agree with everything that you said there. Um, it it looks like we're looking at a fighter in Figueredo who can put on, who can put it on anybody that the UFC has to offer at this time. That makes me wonder, though. I have a question. In Davis and Figueredo, are we looking at a guy who's about to dominate at 125, akin to how Valentina Shevchenko is currently dominating at 125 for the women, or has he just not met? that top-flight athlete that can deal with him? Will he have a challenge in someone like a TJ Dillashaw, a Cody Garbrandt, if he can come back, or even if they come, even if they pay him and Cejudo enough money to try to make it back down to 125? Is he a fighter that we can see defeating those type of competitors, or is he about to go on an extensive run at 125, beating what they have to offer? I just don't know with the weight cut he makes, and at his age, what is he, 31, 32? Uh, I don't know how much longer he makes that weight because the, the, the base, I mean, he's, a te- he's got some technique, he's got some awareness, he's got skill set, but the thing about it is what separates him is the fact that guys can't really hurt him, the guys can't really slow him down, the guys can't get him off him with, once he gets on him, and, and guys can't take w- what he has to fire. That gives him a lot of, that gives, it allows him to take the initiative without paying a price. At a higher weight class, I don't know that he has these, these advantages, and if he doesn't, I think a lot of the holes he has gets exposed. The thing is, they don't have anybody so far that I've seen who's shown enough 
athleticism or shown such a high level of skill as far as offense and defense where they can manage his physical tools. You either have to be light years better as an a- or as a technician and a strategist, or you have to be comparable athlete with comparable power, comparable physicality, and comparable size. That's the thing that makes him difficult. He's explosive, he's agile, he's strong, he's he's explosive, and he's durable, and he's physical. He he can take advantage of each one of those physical skill sets because of that durability and that physicality. Whereas other guys might be quick and fast, they can't highlight that because every time you punch, every time you attack, you're putting yourself in the line of fire for a guy who you can't hurt, which means once he get, acclimates himself to being attacked, he can just pick his counters. Or worse yet, he can just march you down and, and engage in heavy exchanges with you because you can't take what he has to give and he can take what you have to give. So I think his biggest issue is going to be managing the weight. <laughs> is he going to be able to maintain it so that he can not burn himself out so that he can continue to make the weight and have good cardio and have his explosiveness to where he doesn't explode once or twice and then he's crippled the rest of the fight. You know, that that's the biggest question right now. I haven't seen anybody who's shown, like I said, nobody who's shown such a high level of skill or nobody who's shown a comparable level of athleticism and the other the other physical tools I mentioned to where they can they can combat him. You know, I mean, I, I still believe he can get tired. I believe you can outwork him. I believe you can punish him with shots, but that takes time. You can break him down over time. You can tire him over time. When he loses a step or he's a little bit hesitant, you can catch that submission. You can land that big shot. You can take him down and, and make him work and exhaust him. But for you to do that, you've got to get through round ones. You've got to get through round twos. And it's really hard to get through with a guy who has no fear of whatever you're trying to do. You take him down, he's fine with that. You want to exchange, he's fine with that. You want to counter, he's fine with that. You want to lead, he's fine with that. You want to tie up and push against the cage, he's fine with that. He has such a physical advantage that any position you put him in, he's he's okay with it because he's got enough skill to handle himself, but he's got such an advantage physically that he can muscle his way in out of any in and out of any position he wants to. And even if he's not technically the sharpest, his kick to the body sounds a lot different than somebody else's kick to the body. And the last point I want to make is as much as as much as we can say, like, you know, these guys are young and some of these guys are up and coming contenders and they've they've got skills. The fact of the matter is Joseph Benavides, as faded as he was, he was still probably the winning, one of the more winningest guys in the top five, top three in the division, even at this faded state. So we can say that he beat a faded Joe, Joseph Benavides, but how many guys in the last two to three years had beaten Joseph Benavides? He'd beaten a lot of top-ranked guys. And he, with all that experience and all that seasoning and all that poise and all that acquired skill over the length of his career, he still wasn't able to do anything with Figueredo. How many other guys in the division have that kind of experience, world-class experience, facing world-class athletes, facing guys who they can't out-quick and out-muscle and out-strike or out-grapple? He's he's seen it all, and he had nothing for this guy because of this guy's physical tools. None of these other guys have that point of reference when they get in a tough spot or when they can't dictate the way they normally do. So if he can make the weight safely, fine. I think he could dominate for a long time. I don't think he can make the weight safely. I don't think a year from now he's still fighting in this weight class. So you mentioned who can deal with this guy at this point. And I'm going to bring up one name that no one's really talking about. You know, I'm going to bring up my boy, um, Demetrius Johnson. In a perfect world, if he was called back from uh, one for some somehow, in some fashion, some way, I don't know how that would happen. How do you think this fight will go down? I just know uh, at this stage, I think DJ slowed a little bit. I mean, the biggest thing about the, the big, biggest thing about this, I would say, Figueredo 
would be probably one of the better, maybe one of the top two or three athletes that, that um, Johnson faced outside of Dodson and outside of Cejudo. But then also, um, a lot of the guys he's faced, they they put that maybe Cejudo is a better wrestler. Um, maybe um, Dodson's a better athlete and a better striker. But Dodson didn't seem to have the work rate that Figueredo does. And while he had the durability, he wasn't willing to consistently work. And, and he was only willing to work from the striking point of view. He wasn't really wrestling you. He wasn't really grappling you. In the case with Henry Cejudo, if Henry wasn't really on top, he also wasn't as dominant or effective as a fighter. You know, getting takedowns, controlling, threatening with the takedowns. Figueredo is somebody who can threaten you on top. He can threaten you on the back. He can threaten you in a scramble. And though his striking isn't really textbook and, and my paint isn't really clean, I would probably say he hits harder than he does. He probably hits comparably to Dodson and he, he probably, he, he probably hits him. So as far as the power somewhere in between Dodson and uh Cejudo with that weight class. So I think I probably have to favor Johnson because Johnson really hasn't ever really cleanly lost. I know he lost the decision to Cejudo, but the fact of the matter, but the fact of the matter, it, it'd be a, it's, in my eyes, it'd be like a 60, 40 fight or a 45, 55, five, because Figueredo's, not just capable of threatening in almost every range. He's also so far shown that he has the physicality and strength that he doesn't have to accept bad positions. And you're not just going to knee him in the body. He's going to back off. You're not just going to scare him off with takedowns because he's afraid to grapple with you. He's not going to be afraid to grapple with Demetrius Johnson. He's not going to be afraid to exchange with Demetrius Johnson. The only clear advantage Demetrius Johnson has is the wrestling. And with Figueredo's size and physicality, at least for the first round and a half, he's going to be able to explode into and out of spots. So, so if, if, if Demetrius Johnson can avoid all the heavy artillery and not get in bad positions himself and get grounded out, then yeah, he, he, he pulls away late and works him over and maybe finishes him. But if he gets with something heavy early in the, fir- in the couple, first couple rounds, uh, Figueredo can finish with strikes or he can finish with submissions. And that's not something that, that Demetrius Johnson has had to face from a lot of guys. He's usually been the better athlete than most guys he's fought, and he's had the wider set of skills. Now, he might have the better set of skills than Figueredo, but Figueredo's skill set is just as wide as his. It might not be as technical, but it's just as wide. So now he'd have to have fight a guy who he has to fight on every single front, not, oh, I can just wrestle this guy. He usually can out-wrestle and out-submit you. He can out-grapple you and out-strike you. You know, he, he has multiple ways he can attack you. Against Figueredo, Figueredo has just as many ways to attack him. So it'd be, a, I think it'd be a tougher fight for him, but I still favor him just because of his pedigree and the fact that he's never really truly been dominated or stopped at that weight class. <laughs> Do you think that that would be a big fight for the UFC? Would that be something that they would be excited to make? I mean, I don't know that it'd be a big fight just because DJ, DJ insists on making every fight like, oh, it's just another day at the office. He downplays every other fight, so there's no way they could really sell it. But outside of uh, Figueredo just looking so dominant, yeah, you could push from that angle. Like, here's this guy crushing everybody. Could he do it to the previous king? And that would make it, that, w- that would have some legs to it. But I don't know that it'd be like some kind of big seller because, I mean, everybody appreciates what um, Demetrius Johnson does and they, his skill set and his tools, but he's still, not, he's still not the kind of guy who draws a lot of fans. It's just not what he does. Okay, I'm not mad about that. Let's talk about someone who they're trying to push to draw a lot of fans, and that is one Valentina Shevchenko, who also fought on Saturday, and she picked up a unanimous decision win over Maya. She looked, you know, she fought her fight. Um, she looked good in the first round, lost the second, and then swept the final three. 
before I'm gonna before I let you dive into this, I want to kind of start and I want to say about Maya is that I think a lot of people were surprised with her ability to kind of hang in there and hang in for this whole fight. I was intrigued with how she performed in the second round, but this is the what happened to her for the rest of that fight is a very indicative of a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu players. Same thing happened to Ariane Lipinski against Antonia and and Antonia Antonina Shevchenko. If you are a, a jujitsu player and you know the, the name of your game is getting the fight down to the ground, which is of course where you play where you play your skill set, these individuals need some better style of takedowns. Because to see Shevchenko was basically body locking Maya and throwing her down, that's how she scored all of her takedowns off of that body lock. And to see that Maya was unable to defend any of them, and she was unable to catch a single leg, push for a double, push her against the cage, switch to a double, switch to a single, any trips, anything like that. The only takedown she actually went for was that judo throw off of the arm drag, uh, that, that kind of setup, and it worked. But Shevchenko was enough of an athlete that she got right back to her feet before Maya could pounce on her. There is a need for solid wrestling across these um, across all aspects of MMA. And in my opinion, this is just another example of that. Yeah, part of it's the wrestling, but like basically I wasn't surprised by the fight. Everybody's like, oh, she took her down. I'm shocked. He's holding her up against the cage. I'm shocked. Uh, Shevchenko's not carving, carving her up on the ground like she does everybody else. But I'm like, as I said to everybody before, Maya, whether you buy into her grappling skills or not, the fact of the matter is she submitted JoJo Calderwood from her back. Nobody else Valentina has fought offers anything off the bat. And Valentina is a very risk-averse fighter. So when she realized there's someone who could catch her in something, or could she's she's not going to take chances. She's just going to chip away, get control, work her over, because she's clearly winning. She didn't have to force anything on the ground because she gets a takedown, and she's in top position, and she's landing some intermittent shots. Even in the first round, she wasn't really landing anything at all. She was just essentially at a stalemate. But that was a stalemate she accepted because she didn't want to over be over pursue for a position because of the submission threat that was there. Now it might not have been a huge submission threat, but Valentina is a smart enough fighter that she's not exposing herself to anything that she doesn't have to. She goes to the ground as a sense of reprieve because even on the feet, if you're a textbook counterpuncher and you're a great striker, we've seen world class strikers get touched up by lesser strikers. Look at Kelvin Gastelum versus um, Israel Adesanya. Israel Adesanya is one of the finest strikers in the world. And he was getting hit left and right by a guy in Kelvin Gastelum, who I don't even think is one of the top 10 strikers in his division, in a, in a very, very suspect middleweight division. So that's point number one. Point number two, a lot of what Valentina's success comes off of is her physicality and her explosiveness, her athleticism. Against Maya, Maya is a big, strong person. You can't just shrug her off. You just can't spin around on the cage and, and dictate to her. And you physically can't just push her off in dominant position. Now, you can get out of, you can sweep her legs slip a strike, take her down, stuff like that, but you can't physically just maul her and physically have your way with her. So even when she's on the ground, she couldn't just clear position and explode through spots. She couldn't just hold her down. And on the feet, even in clinches, she couldn't stay off the cage because Maya is actually physically strong enough to push and pull with her. And lastly, as big as the thing, the the wrestling point you make is very good, but I think the biggest mistake that uh, Maya made isn't, isn't just the wrestling, it's how she set up her striking. She wasn't really attacking the body a lot. And I said that before, she needs to attack the body and the legs. The way she was throwing her strikes, it was easy for Valentina to duck under or slip. 
and and get a sweep a leg or get a throw or get a takedown because Maya was reaching and lunging. If Maya would have started throwing to the body, A, she wouldn't have missed as much. She wouldn't have missed nearly as much. She would have been landing regularly because the body's always there. No matter how slick you are defensively, the body is always there. And B, if you're changing levels and dropping your your dropping your hips, those takedowns that Valentina was getting, those aren't there. A lot of those takedowns came off of missed punches. You know, she they'd be exchanging in a punt in a strike. She would step in, get under them, tight, go for the body locks, get her down, get a leg sweep, something of that nature. If she drops her levels and she's attacking the body first, it's a little it's a little bit harder to get that body lock. It's a little bit harder to get to her legs because Maya's already shorter than you. Now she's dropped down another half an inch to two inches. It's gonna be even harder to get to, to, to get underneath her center of gravity to get the takedowns. And at no point did Maya's team start mixing that up, mixing up her combinations or varying her targets. So it became really predictable. Maya's team actually came up with a really good game plan for her. But the thing, and I say this when I talk to fighters who I want to coach, who want me to coach them or come up with game plans. I was like, I can come up with a game plan, but when you're facing an opponent who is so much better than you as far as your, uh, as far as their athleticism and you're facing an opponent who's got so much depth of skill and a discipline, it's the same thing uh, MMA trainer Sean Madden said, these people are going to make adjustments. So early on, you can confuse them, and that's fine. Round or two, maybe you might even get to half of the way through the second round. You can still confuse them with your strategy. But at some point, they're going to figure it out. And then it comes down to, are you willing to fight to hold the ground you have or to get more ground? And Jennifer Meyer came to a point where the tricks weren't working. Uh, Valentina had figured out the entries. She had figured out the setup. She had figured out the rhythm. She figured out where they were trying, what they were trying to do, and she was taking it away. And at that point, Maya had to bite down and just exchange, make it a firefight and risk getting knocked out. Maya made it, in my opinion, Maya made a choice. Like, I can take some punishment. I can go these rounds, but I'm not going to extend myself in such a fashion that I risk getting highlight reeled knocked out by this woman. And maybe that's for the best because going five rounds with Valentina and making her work might do a lot for her, her reputation. Getting KO'd would not. But it's like I said with Liz Carmouche. At some point, you have to walk through fire. You have to take a risk of getting finished if you really want a chance of winning. And once the tricks weren't enough, once the, the strategy wasn't enough, once the techniques had been figured out, it was going to come down to was she willing to bite down on her mouthpiece and sell out for the KO or sell out for the submission. She was never willing to do that. There were spots where she was accepting the spot she was in. She was accepting being taken down. She's accepting just tying her up. She's accepting holding her up against the cage instead of selling out and putting her neck on the line. And that's where Valentina won it. You're not going to out, you're gonna, not going to outmaneuver her for five rounds. You're not going to out-technique her for five rounds. You can only manage and control her output and her willingness to exchange for so many rounds before she, she finds her rhythm, she finds her comfort zone, and she starts opening up. Early on, she was rusty. She was sharp. I don't think she was in shape either. But if she, once she realized what Maya's doing and realized Maya wasn't going to push it on her, she started opening up. When Maya was being more aggressive and really clinching with her and really pushing on her, Valentina wasn't trying to exchange. She wasn't trying to exchange at all. She realized, I can't scare this girl off on my counters, so I don't want to get into any heavy exchanges. If she's willing to bite down, she might catch me. Not on the first shot. She might have to throw seven to land three, or she might have to throw ten to land four. But she's willing to, if she's willing to throw that ten, I'm not going to take that risk. But once she realized Maya's not willing to throw, change her targets and she's not willing to open up, then she started opening up, and she just start, started dominating the striking exchanges and the wrestling exchanges. First couple rounds, she was just dominating wrestling exchanges, if you noticed. So let me ask a question then, because you saw Shevchenko, she's coming off of that meniscus injury, and that, you know, the, knee, the knees do strike some fear in, in people when you are coming off 
of a serious injury in that space. So I've heard some rumblings, read about a couple, that people are looking at this as a lackluster uh, performance for Shevchenko. I don't agree. Like I said, she's coming off of a long-term time off, and she's basically, you know, that is a serious injury to to try to come back from. Do you think this was a lackluster performance? And I think that that kind of denigrates a little bit Jennifer Maya's toughness and her ability to hang in there. What are your thoughts about that? Well, when I before I said before the show, I said there's a chance that Valentina is not 100. percent I don't think she's 100. percent Even when she's come back training, yeah, you're training hard and everything, but you're just coming off an injury, so some of you might not push it as much. And when you're also a risk averse fighter who's only going to expose themselves so much, then it's even less of a chance that you're going to be working at the necessary paces to uh, dominate a fight. And then secondly, the fact of the matter is. Nine times out of ten, Valentina is so much more stronger and physical than the people she's fighting. She's able to dominate in those spots that she got to. So that's where you don't take it away from Jennifer. When she took Jessica I down, did she have any problem with Jessica I on the ground? No. She had any problem with Joanna and Jadrick on the ground? No. Cachuera? No. Caitlin Chukagan? No. She wasn't that. She didn't have any problems with them because they all lacked the size and physicality to either stalemate her. Or to get her down, or to st- or to stalemate her on the feet, where she couldn't control position and just bully them and walk them across the cage. So yeah, part of it is the fact that she wasn't sure her timing was a little bit off, and 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 it was only heightened by her risk averse, efficient. I'm gonna avoid all sorts of dangers style. That's one. But the second part is she was facing a person she couldn't physically bully and have her way with. That changes things. I know everybody likes to say it's all skill, it's all skill, skills pay the bill, blah blah blah. There's a certain component, there's a certain aspect of physicality that allows you to dictate position and dictate ranges and dictate exchanges. When Valentina realized she didn't have that advantage, she started playing it even safer. She didn't want to exchange on the feet. Oh, I hit her and she's not going away? Ooh, I'm not taking any chances. Oh, I'm clinching up with her and she's, she, she's able to hold her ground with me? I don't like that. Let me get this takedown real quick. I took her down and I can't just clear, clear her legs and get the position? Uh, okay, I'm just going to sit here and we're just going to stalemate because I'm the champion. She can't, if she's not going to do anything, she can't beat me. I got the title. It might be boring, but she's not going to beat me. I'm not going to lose my title or get beat up holding this position and, and hitting her with one or two shots every 10 seconds or so. So she realized the danger and she made an adjustment until she figured out what was going on and then she turned it on. But for people who are saying it's lackluster, yeah, it was lackluster. She's coming off an injury. She couldn't possibly been as sharp as she wanted to. And, you know, and this is my second fight in what, a couple months? Three, four, three months? This is Valentina's first fight in, what, three or four, five months? I'm not sure. It's been a while since she's fought, for one. And when you're a timing fighter, you need to be fighting often and training often to maintain that. That's part of it. And secondly, she's facing someone who, for once, she does not have a huge advantage in physicality and strength. She can't just have her way against people. She just can't throw them around and slam them around and hold them down and, and just clear positions and get positions the way she wants to because Maya has the technique, but she also has the horsepower to hold her in guard, to hold her in half guard, to push her up against the fence and not get pushed off, to tie up with her and push her across the cage. That changes everything. You have to factor in everything. And that's why I said the fight would go the rounds if Maya played it right. If she didn't decide not to win, the fight would go rounds because of her durability and her physicality. Valentina's never hasn't faced that since she fought Amanda Nunes. Maybe Holly Holm. That's the last time she's faced anybody with that kind of that kind of that kind of, those kind of attributes, and when she finally faced them again, she looked she she looked good. She won dominantly, but she didn't win nearly as dominantly as she did against an I, a Chukagan, a Cachuera, or whoever else she faced. 
she faced. She just threw them around left and right. They couldn't do anything with her. She got the position she wanted on Maya, but she wasn't having her way on the ground. She controlled her, but she wasn't having her way on the ground. We've seen her have her way on the ground. That was not it Saturday night. So who do you think is next for Shevchenko? Um, Cynthia Cavillo lost to Caitlin Chukagian, who's already been stopped by the champion. We have Amanda Ribas out there, Mackenzie Dern out there, um, Jessica Andrade out there, Lauren Murphy talking all her shit as well. I, I, who do you think I is next for Shevchenko? If Calvillo won, it'd be between her and Andrade. Um, it's probably going to be Andrade. They need a, They want a name fight. They they want a name fight. They wanted something to fight where it's going to be exciting. We know Andrade can't help it being exciting. Part of it is a uh, part of it is her style. Part of it is her lack of depth of defensive skill and or lack of depth in her offensive skill that makes her somewhat vulnerable. I will say that after seeing the way Maya was able to kind of close the pace and physically manhandle and control and make make Valentina work in certain spots, while I'm never going to say that, well, I'm not going to say that Val, that um, Andrade's style fits well against Valentina because the fact of the matter is Andrade likes to come forward. Valentina likes to counterpunch aggressively and Andrade seems to be allergic to defense, which means she's going to be touched up left, right, early and often. The fact of the matter is a big, strong, physical girl who's not particularly athletic was able to get to certain spots against her and was able to bully her in certain spots and was able to take her down. And even though she didn't land with real power, Maya was able to land some shots to her. Maya was able to, to, to land more than Valentina expected. She got she hit Valentina more than she expected. She didn't hit her a lot, but Valentina, I don't think, was really expecting to get touched at all. And against someone like Andrade, she throws a little bit more wild, but you know something that Andrade does that Maya and nobody else does? She attacks the body. And she's shorter, so she's already coming in underneath um, Valentina's line of fire. So even though she's going to have to t- walk through hell to get to it, Andrade is willing to walk through hell. She's willing to get finished, to win the fight, and Andrade is somebody who's not afraid to take take three to land one or two, and she's not afraid to attack the body and attack the legs. And if my and if Maya can hold her own and walk through some of that fire a little bit, and Maya can land some shots, and Maya's not half as fast as Andrade and not half as explosive, then you have to think that if Andrade comes up with the right game plan and can b- balance her aggression with some control, like making more deliberate aggression, maybe purposeful aggression that she could have some spots and possibly get to have an opportunity to win the fight. Do you think Andrade is, or yeah, do you think Andrade is physically as strong as uh, Shevchenko? Shevchenko looked like strong on, on Saturday. Yeah, Shevchenko looked strong, but, and she's been strong, but the fact of the matter is, I, I still say, when is the last time you've seen Jessica uh, Valentina pushed up against the cage for any length of time? against Nunez, when's the last time you seen anybody take her down and hold her down for any period of time? Probably against Nunez as well. As strong as she looked, she wasn't able to clearly and consistently dominate position against Maya. I mean, yes, she controlled her, but she wasn't just having her way like she's done with everybody else. So while Andrade is probably, you would, I would like to think that Andrade is smaller, but the fact is Andrade came down from Bantamweight. So Andrade is pretty big in the first place. I personally think that Andrade's physical strength is on par with Maya, and the difference between her and Maya is she's more athletic. She's faster, she's more explosive, she hits harder. So 
it'll, it'll be new for her. She, Andrade isn't used to locking up with people who can move around. Andrade is very hittable. Even Kaitlyn Chukagan was hitting her, and Kaitlyn Chukagan, I think, defended a takedown. So there, there is that aspect of it because Valentina's got such a gap on her technically as far as skill. But when it comes to physical attributes, there's not as big a gap between Val and Jessica as there is between Val and Maya, Val and I, and Val and Chukagan. Andrade is the better athlete than all three of them put together. This is probably one of the faster, more explosive, and more athletic people that Val has fought. So now she's dealing with somebody with physical strength and size and durability and someone who's got enough athleticism that they can, they can land shots even though they're not, technically, they're not technically correct. And they can put some pop on those shots even if they're not technically correct. Good thoughts there, sir. Good, good breakdown on both of those um, aspects of the fight. Uh, do you want to talk about Tim Means and Mike Perry? I don't want to talk about Mike Perry. I think he should be cut. But is there any value in this fight as well? You want to talk about this or anything else? It, the, the, the only the only value. Well, I have two fights I want to talk about. The only well, actually, I'll make some quick hits. I talked to Arlene about the fight with Tim Means. The best thing for Tim Means was because Mike Mike Perry is such a sideshow and a train wreck. Tim Means got a lot of attention, so it's a very high profile win for him. So hopefully, he can use this to catapult him into a bigger name and maybe get into contention. Even though Perry's nowhere near contention. When you have a high-profile win that people can get behind, it can give you the momentum to get better fights and, and maybe possibly, if you play your cards right, get into contendership. So it's great for Tim Means. Uh, I already said what I said about Mike Perry. He's clearly on decline, and, and I don't know how much longer he's in the UFC. I mean, and even if he's in there, he's going to continuously take beatings. He, he's not getting the sparring necessary to even defend himself competently, in my opinion, and it's going to start having disastrous returns on that. Um, so Calvillo versus Chukagan. Calvillo fought the dumbest fight possible. I'm starting to lose all respect for AKA as a coaching coaching team because the simple fact of the matter is Calvillo is best when she fights as an aggressive counterpuncher. She fights like Benson Henderson, moving back, walking people into kicks and these little flurries of punches. For some reason, she decided I'm going to chase Caitlin Chukagan, who's known for her busy footwork, her wide array of strikes, and her high volume striking. So your goal against this person isn't to make them lead to come to you where their defense and their striking isn't nearly as good, but to chase them down, not attack the legs, not kick to the body and punch to the body and attack the legs, but to throw high volume punches to the head against one of the most mobile fighters in the division who throws a eclectic array of strikes. It was poor game planning, and at no point did her team tell her to make an adjustment. They just kept having her press and try to wrestle and try to box. And Kavio is like Misha Tate. She's a better grappler than she is wrestler. She's not a great wrestler. Once she gets to the ground, she's dangerous. Getting people to the ground, I mean, Carla Spars out wrestler her. If I remember correctly, Pearl Gonzalez was out wrestling her too. And neither one of them is really great in terms of wrestling credentials. It was a good showing for Chukagan, but now we've got this, this log jam at fly in the division because Chukagan got beat by Valentina. She got beat by Andrade. She somehow beat Calvillo. I mean, I guess now she fights uh, Lauren Murphy for the next title fight after Jessica Andrade. But it was a good performance for her. It was a really bad performance by Tindia Calvillo. Now she's all the way back to the line. She's got to win two or three fights minimum to be in contendership again. So she she dropped the ball badly, and her team dropped the ball, especially if she talked all that trash about Lauren Murphy and then goes out there and loses the fight. So that was a bad loss for her. And last thing, Antonina, she looked good against Ariana Lipsky. And uh, Ariana, just, she was a big signing for the UFC, but she's been underwhelming, and I, I, don't, I don't know why. I don't know that she's not too far from being cut herself, except to have a body in the division, because she's clearly shown she's not going to be contending for anything. I mean, that's a good breakdown there, sir. I think I was, I had the same thoughts about the Ariane, the, the Pinsky bout. I thought she was going to win, 
Uh, but, you know, she just got hammered out there, and that's kind of what happened. She's still young in the game, so I think she has an opportunity to grow in that space, but uh, that loss is pretty one-sided, and it was a lot different than what I thought we were going to see. I would have thought that that loss against Calderwood and Molly McCann, that she would have made some severe changes, but she doesn't. It's, it, when she has an advantage on the feet or an advantage athletically, she's fine. As soon as things get close on either front, it's like she doesn't know how to act or react. I mean, she she just got she was never in that fight. I've never seen Antonina look so dominant in my life. Never. I've never seen a, seen her win a fight so dominantly. Not on contender series. Not in the fight she's won the UFC. She has never looked that dominant, and she looked the best she's ever looked against Ariana Lipsky. And I don't think that's up because all of a sudden she's a great fighter. I think it's because Ariana Lipsky is very limited and needs a lot of work for she can contend at any real level in the UFC. Good stuff there, sir. Um, let's talk about contending in the UFC because we have a heavyweight bout this weekend between Curtis Blaze and Derek Lewis with the winner probably being on the short list of fighting for an eventual title shot uh, in the UFC. I'm not exactly sure how they're going to get there in this heavyweight division, but Derek Lewis and Curtis Blaze are definitely near the top of the division behind Francis Ngannou. How do you see this fight going down on Saturday? I mean, it'll probably go like every other Derrick Lewis fight. I mean, he'll either land something big off the counter early and win, or he'll be getting out-wrestled and outstruck and taken down and nearly submitted, and then somebody will get a little bit too over-pursue, and he'll get, he'll get back up, or somebody will mess around with him on the feet a little bit longer than they should or take a bad shot. He'll defend it and then just obliterate them with strikes. That's pretty much... I mean, Derrick Lewis fights only go one way. I don't expect him to come out and hit a high crotch, you know, I don't expect him to suplex somebody or to take him down and go for a reverse triangle or a uh, armbar Kamura. That's not what he does. He basically either gets overwhelmed with punishment and broken down, or he hangs on long enough to land a big shot. He does just he does he defends just enough well enough to get an opportunity to land a big shot every round, and in one of those rounds he lands it and ultimately wins the fight. I mean, at this point, Derek Derek Lewis is who he is, and it's the same for his opponent. He's He's kind of who he is. You know, we, we kind of know what Curtis Blades is about. We kind of know what Curtis Blades is capable of. And he doesn't perform under that, but he he doesn't really perform over that either. Do you think the winner of this fight here is the number one contender? Or what do they do with this situation? Because they have Stipe, who is the champion, and he looks to be most interested in the fight with John Jones, and that's it. You have Jones, who's also making it a point to call out the heavyweight champion. Um, Blades Blades is a guy who talks just enough and is smart just enough to talk himself right out of a, a fight with uh, the for the heavyweight title, knowing, knowing the UFC. And Derek Lewis is the, is a, is a type of com- com- comedy act that they love and they'll put in that title picture. So what do you think about this here, sir? Do you think that this is going to be a situation where if Derek Lewis wins, he could be in the title picture, but if Curtis Blades wins, he'll be far out of it? I mean, Curtis Blades has a lot of wins. And, you know, he's, I mean, he's pretty much beating the who's who in the division. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is a lot of guys he's beaten, I, I don't know that they're still in the division at all. And he doesn't really have a – I mean, he beat T- Junior DeSantis, but it's – this version of Junior DeSantis is not great. When he fought Volkov, I mean, that wasn't a very impressive fight at all. I mean, he was he looked dominant the first round. He 
He didn't show any any layers to his offensive grappling. He didn't show any layers to his striking. He didn't show any ability to extend ex- extend exchanges in any frame where he could really threaten threaten him and, and finish him. He just basically wrestled him and controlled him. It was one of the most dominant but unimpressive wins in recent UFC history. So he doesn't have any momentum on him. He doesn't have anything behind him saying that he needs to get a title shot or that he should be next in line because he hasn't done anything against a maybe an established enough threat of a fighter for anybody to believe that he has a chance of beating Nganu or a chance of beating um, Stipe. Um, as far as Derek Lewis, we, we've already seen him contend for a title. We already know what he is. If he wins the fight, I guess you could sell it because he's got a bit of a personality. But, I mean, it's not a fight that – it's not going to be anything that draws a lot of interest because of the nature of how he fights, you know. I mean, you, you can't ever predict a really good fight with him because it is hard. He's a counterfighter. He doesn't throw volume. He doesn't look for exchanges. He, he just likes to – you throw something, he, he times you and throw something back. You take him down, you work him over, he finds an escape and lands a big shot. There's not a lot of depth to his game, and there's not a lot of consistent action, which is what draws in the fans before a fight, consistent action. So I don't think whoever wins this fight, I don't think either one of them is necessarily a contender for a fight. They'd have to be, win at least one more fight, I think, or just wait around to see who uh, wins from Stipe and, and Nganu and then go from there. I think Jones, I think Nganu's got a better argument, and I think Jones is a better argument just because he's a star in the UFC wants big events. You know, best case scenario, one of them could, could possibly get John Jones when he comes up. Like, hey, you know what? I, don't, I would say I don't even want the title. I, whoever wins, call out John Jones. That's that's their best bet to being a, a potential contender. That's the best bet for them getting paid. Call out John Jones. Forget about Stipe. Call out John Jones. That is a good point. And John, you know John's going to be on social media watching, and you know he's going to have something to say if that happens. So that's actually a very sound uh, idea there, Schwann. What else on this card stands out to you, if anything, of note? Well, one, I'm trying to see how far Anthony Smith has officially slid in, slid as far as a fighter. Um, his last two fights were really bad. I mean, he was not, he was competitive for like a round and a half against, against the Glover. And then he got beat to the point where, you know, I mean, people were basically he was handing saying, the ref his teeth. Yeah. They were saying he, they should fire his, his team because they allowed him to take such a horrendous beating, you know, and he really hasn't looked the same since he lost to Jones. I mean, his last four fights, he's one in three. And in the three losses he had, they were extremely one-sided. He was not competitive in any form or fashion in those fights so it's in you know i'm wondering if he has anything left and if he's capable of even flirting with being a world-class fighter or is this going to be another nail in the coffin and it eventually would lead him out of the ufc because he's he's no longer able to um face the best of the best it's one thing to lose to jones it's one thing to lose to tichera because tichera has been on this hot streak it's one thing to lose to you know it's one thing to lose to those caliber people it's another thing to lose to Devin Clark. And Devin Clark's a good fighter, but, you know, much like Alexander Rakic, he's another guy who's, who's not considered one of the more dominant forces in the division. He's another example of how the division is kind of thin and people are able to navigate their way around it because of the lack of consistency in the division. Whether it's light heavyweight, middleweight, or whatever, those divisions just are a little spotty as far as the competition. So I'm just interested to see if he has anything left. I, I really think he should be considering retirement and if he loses this fight, I think that's a conversation that needs to be had once again um, because, I mean, this is a tough business to be in when you're a high-level athlete with high-level skills. Anthony Smith is pretty much the only high-level ability he has is his durability and his heart. 
And as far as high-level skills, I don't think he has any. Not as a striker, wrestler, or grappler. He's he's pretty average. He's like he's basically like a Forrest Griffin to a certain degree. Decent skills, big heart, makes for exciting fights. But you know, once they get past it, a certain point, their lack of athleticism essentially makes them incapable of winning fights. You know, he doesn't have the athleticism to make up for his lack of size, and in a lower weight class. He doesn't have the speed and quickness to make up for what to to enhance whatever physical advantages he has. So he's just kind of stuck as a tweener between middleweight and light heavyweight. And I, I'm just I'm just waiting to see if he can if he's progressed enough where he can navigate those weaknesses and still be a fringe contender, or if he really is completely off the rails and he's gonna have to look seriously at a uh, retiring. Yeah, I think that's really gonna be the question about uh, Anthony Smith, and it's interesting the way the rails have kind of fallen off on him. Um, you know, I'm actually going to use that as a segue because we're talking about someone who we, we saw, where we, we've seen the rails kind of fall off, former title challenger. And this weekend we have a boxing match between two former champions, two guys who were probably considered the greatest during their times and two guys who saw the wheels fall off in a massive way on their way out the door. Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. are battling it out Saturday in what is being called a glorified sparring bout. I'm going to break down the rules for you first. So there's no judges, no scorecards, so there will not be a winner announced. There's eight, round, uh, there's eight rounds, two minutes each. No headgear, 12-ounce gloves. No knockouts or bad cuts. That's what the fighter they claim the fighters are not going for a knockout. So what do you think about this, Schwan? Um, we have two guys in Jones and uh Tyson who are you know, they're they're warriors, man. They're fighters. And they get in there and they get the they they they, they fight. Do you think these guys are really gonna go in there and be able to curve themselves back? Well, the thing about it is, it's weird because as, as Roy Jones, when he, in his prime, when he, he was the peak of his powers, he never really took chances. He didn't want to travel to places. He didn't want to fight without everything being right. He took a lot of fights against really good guys, the guys who was clearly superior to. In his old age, and once he started losing, he's traveling all over to Russia, all over. He's fighting all sorts of fights that he never would have fought in his youth, which is really weird. So it's like, as he's gotten older, he's gotten more crotchety and, and more of a risk taker. I don't know that you would ever say a warrior so much as a very once in a life. He's like a BJ Penn, maybe, and it's the fact that he's such a once in a lifetime kind of talent. I don't know that he's outright just this great warrior. Nobody would think of that in, in those terms as far as boxing. Same thing with, with Mike Tyson. He's a savage, physical, punishing fighter, but a lot of people wouldn't call him a warrior either because a warrior is a guy who, when the fight gets toughest, they find ways to win, they find ways to stay in. And to some people, and I don't know if I 100% agree, but to some people, Mike's never found a way to win against comparable opposition, and Mike's never found a way to make it through 12 rounds against a guy who was really his equal or his better. And, and that takes away from the warrior thing. What it is is two guys who had the hype of the hip-hop community and the hype of th the sporting world, Mike Tyson for his savagery and his, his athleticism and, his, and the way he just destroyed people, and, and Roy Jones Jr. for his athleticism and the way he made... He could fight. He could flaunt the rules of boxing and dominate, and also make world class guys look like like they were, uh, you know, my level of boxer. That that's what really uh, 
really separated them. So it's kind of a dream match for the people who always wonder, like, you know, what would Tyson do against somebody with Roy's kind of hand speed and athleticism and reaction time and funky style? And what would Roy do against a guy who not just has the power and the size to hurt him, but a guy who's got the speed and explosiveness to at least match him in spots? And for the first four rounds, it's pretty much the most dangerous boxer or fighter you'll ever meet. And so it's it's the nostalgia for what they were at their peaks and the fact that, you know, Roy still looks like he's in good shape. He looks sharp. He's, his hands are still quick. Uh, Mike Tyson got really heavy for a while, but then in the past year, two years, he's looked ripped up and you see him hitting the pads and you see him moving around and it just gives you, uh, it shows you shades of who he used to be because you you see the ferocity, you see the the muscles, you see the quickness, you see the explosiveness. So it's making people kind of fall in love with the nostalgia of it. The reality of this fight is you have Mike who hasn't fought in I don't know how many years. And he, I think he lost the last fight he was in. You have Roy who was knocked out in the last fight he was in. And Roy still has quick hands. He might even have quick feet and reaction time, but his knees are really gone. He can't move the way he used to. But they show enough flashes and hitting the pads and, and, and how they talk because they're still, if you want to say alpha males, they're still alpha males. They're still guys who who remember being the best at one point in their career, and they still have that swagger and that confidence, especially when you see them in shape. But the actual quality of the fight is going to be in question because neither one of these guys has been hit in so many years, you know, in, re- in a real fight. And the actual competitiveness of the fight is going to be in question because of the so many rules. And the question is, did the commission put those rules in? Or did Mike and Roy ask for those rules so that they wouldn't look bad and, and maybe lose some of their luster or lose some of their value to the people you know, who uh, who kind of allow them to have podcasts and do interviews and, and have other impact across social media and other aspects of business because of who they used to be. You know, it's one thing when you got knocked out 20 years ago, 15 years ago, people don't watch those fights all the time. People don't remember your low points. You know, Jordan was a wizard and people don't talk about it. They talk about the 10 or 15 great games he had as a wizard. They talk about his dominance as a as guy with the Bulls. If Jordan played right now, how many people really want want to watch it because it would take that away? So I I wonder if the rules are the rules as far as a charity event or whatever, or the rules what Roy and Mike said because they don't want to lose that mystique. I'm a fan of both guys. Great talents, uh, great points in boxing who who really kind of changed the narrative as far as boxing and how people looked at boxers. But this fight on paper isn't isn't anything anybody should be excited about. And the more you hear about the rules, the less exciting it is. The only thing you can hope is that just like the uh, the exhibition exhibition fight between Jorge Arce and Chavez, that one actually in the, the competitive juices of two great fighters got into them and they actually fought. Even though they had headgear and they were fighting, fighting like they they were fighting like young contenders who really wanted it. So maybe these guys get a little competitive. Maybe somebody takes a shot a little bit too hard and they said, you know what, I'm going for it. And that might build some excitement. But um, a lot of this fight is just built off nostalgia of who they used to be and what they used to be able to do. And neither one of those guys is that guy anymore. But at least in this case, they're fighting someone around their age range so that it could at least, in theory, be more competitive than we would expect it to be, than them fighting some young guy for no reason. Let me ask this. You just you said it. This is an exhibition. Is this like a Rocky Three exhibition where someone's yelling, just throw the damn towel? Are we going to see that moment on Saturday? I mean, I, be- I believe I believe Mike's got the better chin than Roy. Always has been, always will. And um, if if Mike's not totally gone, I I really feel him. I feel if Mike hits Roy hard, he can knock him out. I think Roy can knock Mike out with a series of shots. 
but I think Mike could probably knock him out with any shot he committed to, whether it's to the body or to the head. I, I really believe that. Mike's not the biggest hitter, but he's still fast. He's still the way he tor- the way his style is with the hunched over. It, it allows him maximum torque. I don't know that Roy can take that kind of shot. I mean, he's never really been he's never really been hit by guys who are even when, later in his career when he's getting knocked out. He wasn't getting knocked out by big big punchers. He's getting knocked out by decent punchers who just caught him. Mike Tyson would still get knocked out by even if it was journeyman heavyweight. Even journeyman heavyweights can punch. They can still hit. There's just a across the board. Most heavyweights can hit very hard. It's not the same with light heavyweight. It's not always the same with cruiserweight. So. In theory, Tyson should be able to take more than Roy. And I think Tyson's body is a lot more rested up than Roy because Tyson hasn't fought in years. He didn't train for years, so he's in the best shape possible. He doesn't have the extra wear and tear on him. And um, I think he might just be a little bit fresher for a fight of this nature. There you go, sir. I appreciate that breakdown. I think it's going to be fun. I'm not sure if I'm willing to pay for it quite yet. But we'll see what happens when Saturday comes around and I've had a few drinks put in me. So, Schwan, let everybody know what you're working on, man. What do you got going on for this week? Uh, I mean, I'm just working on articles, going on Twitter, and basically calling out these these camps and corners for these ridiculous game plans and for basically stealing money from fighters. You know, I, I know everybody... I know everybody gets mad at me because they're like, well, you could do better. I mean, Mike Perry could have called me. I could have come up with a better plan than what he had. And, and a lot of these people are making mistakes. And I understand mistakes happen, but these are like fighters' careers. Like, fighting career isn't, it's a very short time you can fight, and it's an even shorter time where you can maximize your money. And some of this just bad preparation and bad scout work is costing people money that could set them up moving forward. It costs them opportunities that could set them up moving forward. And, and people don't like to hear from me because I'm not a fighter. I didn't used to fight. What do I know about it? The facts are the facts. I don't have to be a fighter to tell you that that was a bad game plan based off who you were fighting and what they were doing. Just because I haven't experienced it doesn't mean it's wrong. You know, I could tell well, this, this equals an explosive. Okay, well, have you ever mixed it together and explode? No, it's basic fucking science. It's, it's a fact. These are the facts. And if you don't understand how to watch film or you don't understand how to talk to a fighter and be honest with them, then you're basically... Being you're you're basically not doing your job and you're setting that fighter up for failure. And those fighters do not make enough money to give ten or fifteen percent of it to a cam that is not doing their job. So you just find me out there clearly pointing out holes in approach, clearly pointing out holes in strategy, and clearly pointing out inconsistencies in camps when they're in regards to the performances their fighters consistently put on against the top level athletes or even guys who are who are closer to the bottom level. The fact is they don't know how to do their job. And they can argue, I used to fight. Well, if you used to fight in that matter so much, why are you making the wrong call on every fight? How did you have a fight this bad with this much, this, this, this kind of stakes on the line? How could you not come up with something better where your fighter at least has a chance to win? So I'm just constantly staying on that because, you know, as much as people are going to bash me, there'll be some other camp, like Israel Adesanya's camp came out and they said the same thing I've been saying for the past two years. And everybody said, genius. Oh, this is genius. I've never heard it put that way. I've been putting it away for the last two years. I say the same thing. I see the same thing because I work with the same people. But I just feel the fans need to know this. And I feel young fighters coming up need to understand the value of having a legitimate camp who really knows how to watch them and really can be honest with you about what you can and can't do and really can be honest about you about the threat your opponent faces instead of just telling you, oh, you're better than them everywhere. You're better than her everywhere. It's like that's not true. Somebody's got to tell you that's not a lie. 
and train you in a manner to handle the threat in front of you instead of pretending there is no threat. And then you get in the fight and realize you can't do certain things and you just lose. And all your fan- your team keeps telling you, take control of the cage. It's your cage. Take control of it. Impose your will. Like, what does that mean, dude? That's, that's nothing. That's a cliche. That's not an actual strategy. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. Let me ask you this, Sean. What's the one thing, if you were telling a young fighter, boxer, MMA, otherwise, that you would say that you had to be most concerned about? I guess you watch out for the most having the wrong people around you, whether it's corners, whether it's managers, having people you A, cannot trust, and B, are not either. I don't care if they have experience, because if you, you want to learn well enough, you can you can find the people to learn, and you can get better each and every time, and you can get to the point where you, you can do the job amazingly. But have people who are, you can trust, the people who are committed to the process of getting better and understanding all aspects of whatever their job is. If it's hand, handle contracts, they need to be on they're behind learning that the same way Maverick Carter did for LeBron James. He didn't know any of that stuff. He had to learn on the fly and he delved into it and immersed himself into it. They want to train you. They need to learn everything. They need to do mentorship. They want to handle the money. They need to do that. They want to do contracts. They need to do that. They need to be a hundred percent bought in into your best interest and doing whatever it takes to get whatever information they do to put you, you put you in the best position possible. It can't be about their ego. It can't be about how they feel. It can't be about what they want. It has to be about what is best for you and what puts you in the best position to win. Everything else is secondary. And if your team is not full of people like that, you got the wrong team, and it doesn't matter how talented you are, they're going to run you off the tra- run you off the road eventually. You'll just be another talented person in the ditch when there's lots of them. You need to put that on a T-shirt. you just be another talented person in the, in the uh, ditch. That's a great tagline there, Sean. I'm sure to hear uh, Dana White probably will say it in another couple of months. He'll say it on the show, and people will think it's amazing. Huh. You don't, you don't understand. You don't understand how much stuff like UFC fighters, because I know other fighters who know them. How much of these comments they make, and all of a sudden it's like I never heard him say that. That's an interesting comment. Yeah, I, I know one of his. I know one of his teammates. He got that comment from me, dude. You start going down my tweets, and then suddenly like, I don't remember him ever saying, pointing that out before. It's weird. He just all of a sudden out of the blue made this observation that he's never made in his entire six years of commentating. It's weird. It's very weird. He came to this conclusion. It's a total opposite of what he said a month ago. But he must have just watched some film and came to a different conclusion. Did he? Did he come to another conclusion on his own? I don't think that's what happened. I don't think that's what happened. Well, as I said, I'm covering much as much professional wrestling as usual. And also... Um, yeah, that's really it. Um, this week, I am going to be trying to catch up on some wrestling I've missed and doing a bunch of writing in that space. There's a lot of stuff going on there. He's lying. And he ain't going to be resting. He's lying to y'all. He ain't going to be resting. <laughs> so Something I'm will come up. Next Tuesday, and I'm getting excited about that. I'm going to go spend a shit ton of money on food tomorrow because I'm not traveling. So the money I was going to spend on traveling, now I'm going to spend it on food and alcohol tomorrow. So that's how it's, it's, it's about to go down. As Kevin Hart once said, and I'll be chilling here by myself. So let's see how it goes. But as always, everyone, thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the MMA Ratings Podcast. I am Rafael Garcia. My partner, Shawan Hughes, is here. And we'll be back next week for episode 188. So we'll have plenty to talk oh, yeah. about, especially if something ridiculous happens thing. in this boxing fight on Saturday. We wanted to thank you all for the, the recent surge in support. Please keep sharing. Please keep viewing. Please keep discussing. You want to talk to us, you know, you can comment to us on Twitter. You can comment to us on YouTube. 
Um, we just appreciate the support. We've had some really good numbers the past, what, month and a half, two months almost? And um, yeah, we just yeah, appreciate it. definitely surpassed. Uh, it's funny because we surpassed this year's goal of 150 subscribers, and I was going to put our goal next year at 250, and we're at 229. So wow. you may crack that number by the end of this year as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys very much. You have a topic you want us to discuss. You have a certain aspect of a fight or maybe a corner or camp you want us to hit on. Uh, you can find him at R Garcia at on Twitter. You can find me at Black Jordan Breen, or you can go at MMA Ratings and uh, just hit us up and we will we're here for you guys. So whatever you want, we'll get it for you. And uh, just keep on sharing, keep on liking, and keep on listening. We 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 just love doing this for you guys. And with that being said, we'll be back next week and have a great weekend, everybody. Good night, guys. Uh, have a great Thanksgiving.